another. It might seem like just hanging out, but that's actually a real vital part of, we would say, being part of a church and, and doing that. So um, definitely want to celebrate that and good stuff with that. Um, quick note before we jump into the sermon, I wanted to highlight uh, we have Easter coming up. And for some of you who've been in the middle of these uh, snowstorms, I feel like, yeah, this is nice to be outside and see sun today. It's, it's good. Spirits are up. But we've got, um, we've got Easter coming up, Easter weekend coming up uh, on Friday, April 3rd, and Sunday, April 5th is Easter Sunday itself. A good Friday, if you're not familiar, we, um, we remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as he died uh, in sacrifice in our place. So we take Friday evening to worship. And that way, I don't know what you normally would do on a Friday, but whatever it is, I would say come worship instead. I, I can pretty much 99% guarantee it would be better to come worship. So uh, invite people. It's a powerful time. We're going to be joining together with another church to do that here Friday evening on um, April 3rd at 7 p.m. For some of you, if you feel led to it, um, I would encourage maybe you fast that day, just fast from food. Just to identify, again, not that that's a more spiritual thing to do necessarily, but just to identify with the sufferings of Christ even for one day uh, to do that. And then on Sunday, we're going to celebrate. Easter is the day that we remember that Jesus Christ uh, was risen from the grave and conquered sin and death. So this is a big party. It's, it's a big party. So we're going to be having two services that day, a little experiment, 9 o'clock, 1030. Find one, commit to it, bring friends. Um, it's, it's going to be a great time to celebrate Jesus, so we invite you to do that. Put it on your calendar. Make it known. Um, we're, we're starting, and it's kind of a funny thing to say, we're starting the series Scars today because this was supposed to start about three weeks ago or so, but with all of the weather um, and, and guest preachers, I've had the sermon like stewing inside of me. The way I was explaining it, it feels like I got like a two-liter bottle of uh, Coke Zero. So I'm going to put on one of those paint shakers at Home Depot. It's just been shaking up for like three weeks, like going nuts inside me. So I don't know what's going to come out today. Um, Sometimes too much time to marinate cannot be a helpful thing. But uh, we're praying that the Holy Spirit does something with this. But just this whole idea of scars, uh, we explained it a little while ago. Um, we're not, ju- we're just, we're not really into touchy feely kind of happy, happy, joy, joy type of Christianity at our church. Not that we don't believe there's joy and happiness. We believe that's a very integral part of what it means to know Jesus. But at least for myself and many people I've talked to much of our journey, um, it's associated with some of the wounds that we've gone through some different, uh, wounds that have, uh, and, and in different layers. And we're going to be looking at some of that. Um, and, and, this is not to glorify what we've been through, but it's to celebrate God and to actually lift our eyes to him and to say that he is that majestic, that powerful, that he even uses the things that you and I would have said, this has just, um, just killed my life, that he actually even uses them. We'll look at different stories throughout the scripture to point us toward that. And this morning, we're going to start with this idea of a broken heart. So we're going to jump right into Genesis chapter 29. Or, yeah, Genesis 29. If we don't have the verses up on the screen. Um, every so often, there's these books in your pew called a Bible. Some of you might, uh, nowadays with all of the electronic uh, devices, you might not know what that, that, that book is called a Bible. Um, so if you don't have one at home, feel free to take this with you. Uh, this is, it's on page 20 of these Bibles here, Genesis 29. And I'm going to be reading from the second half of verse 14. Starting with, he stayed with him a month, and he is Jacob. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. 
Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. That's love, right? When seven years feels like a few days, I mean, wow. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now, this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son, saying, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for blessings of even the son coming out. Um, And being reminded, Lord, um, through the storms, through the darkness, through the cold, it can be difficult often to see hope. But thank you, Lord, for this good news that we celebrate, that even in the things that we would look to in our lives and in others as tragedy, that, Lord, you somehow work in triumph. And even in our deepest wounds and the scars that we still carry are marks of your redemption. So we pray you would guide us through your word this morning. Holy Spirit, uh, take these words, these ancient words, and illuminate them to modern ears that they would somehow make sense to uh, as big of a crowd this is to every single one of us. We would hear exactly what you need to speak to us through this one word. So we love you, Lord. Thank you for church, that we can be with others to love you. And in your name we pray. Amen. you know, when a, lot of pe- a lot of times when we talk about the Bible, and again, as I say these things, it sounds like I'm making fun of some people, and maybe I am. It's okay, right? I've, I've been known to be mean like that. But um, sometimes we're called, like, the Bible gives you kind of a pattern, a blueprint for your life. Um, and, and a lot of times that's including how you should love, right? And, and you, people build whole sermon series about this. Like, the Bible's blueprint for a perfect marriage or seven steps for how not to have such crazy children and have redeemed little angels as you follow Jesus in the Word. Um, and, I, you know, I don't, maybe it's just me. I've missed that chapter in the scriptures. But, but a lot of times we, we, we find that the scriptures are used in a way, and, and particularly in this area, I think of romantic relationships and marriage. I mean, and, and I want to be clear. I think there's a lot of principles from the word that guide us in these areas of life. And I would fully affirm um, that if you live your life according to the scriptures, I, I think your life will generally go better. I mean... I don't know if we can scientifically prove that, but I, I think it will. 
But at the same time, the purpose of scriptures is more than just this like instruction manual on life. It's really meant to give to us and reveal to us the story of a God who loves creation and who made us to be perfect and fully worshiping him. Yet in our rebellion, we were separated from him. And, and the scriptures are a story of God's rescue mission to make his broken creation back whole again and with him. And, and the whole story is about that and, and how we make that story known. And because of that, because the story is about taking a broken people, a rebellious people, and making them whole, the Bible is unflinching in its depiction of humanity's brokenness. This is not like a watered-down, like, PG version kind of... This is unflinching, and it's definitely true in terms of romantic love and marriage. Um, even in the Bible, like, even your heroes, even the ones that, like, Sunday school characters have little felt people and you, everyone knows, even the heroes are often engaged in things that you would, like, talk to someone and say, yeah, yeah you, you see that? Don't do that. <laughs> you, know, you you see what the hero did? No, no, that's not the way you do marriage. That's not the way you love someone. No, no, you don't do that. And, and we see that in the story here as we look at the story of Jacob and, and Rachel and Leah and if, if you've read about this man, Jacob, before, or if maybe you were here for a series that we did um, a, a year ago, looking at some of these different stories, we talked about Jacob. And you know that the reason now, what we see in Genesis 29, the reason he's here now is, is that he hasn't been engaged with his family, a whole history of deceit and deception. I mean, he, he like deceived his brother so he could receive birthright. If you haven't read it, go check it out. Open source. It's great. Amazing stuff, right? Um, so he's on the run. Jacob is on the run because his brother wanted to basically bash his brains. And so he's on the run. He's, he's, and, and I imagine he was scared. He was running. He didn't have a home. He didn't have a family. And, and God's providence, the midst of all that running, he finds family. He does find family here, his, his uh, uncle Laban. And it would seem that Jacob has escaped his demons He's gotten away from those, he's gotten away from all that lying, all that deceit. He's gotten away from all that dysfunction. And finally, he's found wholeness because he's with people who love him now, people who are telling him to stay. And, and, and not just that, he's smitten. I mean, not just finding family, he's head over heels with, in love with this young woman, Rachel. But there's a little problem because Rachel's got a dad, Laban, and Laban's got two daughters, and Rachel has an older sister. Or, uh, older sister Leah. And, and you see the problem here because Laban, he's got two daughters. He wants to marry off both daughters and he doesn't want to marry off the younger one first. He's got this older one he wants to take care of as a dad would. And, and we see the description here, right? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. And, and this, is, this is pretty, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And, and I'll test to reading, like, I've gone through so many children's Bibles now. No children's Bible has a way to describe what weak eyes means. It's not like she's all googly-eyed. I mean, you know, children's Bibles, they don't do that because they want, don't want kids to get mean and, like, making fun of other kids. But it's interesting because when you look at not just children's Bibles but all Bibles, uh, different translations, they really don't know how to describe Leah's eyes. They, they don't. I mean, there's a lot of times you hear things like her eyes were delicate. Or her eyes were tender. Or, I mean, they even used the word her eyes were broken because the, the, literally the, the language here means fragile. The, for weak, it means fragile. Because, you know, I think Bible trans translators, they're like most of us. They don't just want to be cruel. They don't want to be mean. Um, you know, 
It does, but I, when we look at the context here, it doesn't seem too difficult to see what they're trying to say. Because when it says Leah's eyes were weak, it, I mean, it doesn't seem to be saying, yeah, a girl just needed some LASIK. I, I mean, it, it, because if, if that were the case, it would have said, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel's eyes were like 20-20, yo. I mean, if, 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 if it were about how well she could see, then it would have contrasted with how well Rachel can see in comparison. But that's not what it does, right? It's not talking about how well they see. It's about how good they looked. That's what we guys is talking about. So it's saying you've got one girl who's got some kind of eye deformity or issue, or be, and because of it, she wasn't much to look at. But her sister, wow, what a knockout. I mean, I mean gorgeous. And, you know, I, I just praise God that in our modern, enlightened day and age, we are just past such shallowness. You know, these barbarians back in ancient times, you know, so shallow about uh, physical appearance. Thank God we are enlightened now with modern science and technology and Apple and Google and all this, my face and whatever. Uh, thank God that we are so enlightened. We don't care about stuff like that anymore. But what, what we have here is Jacob has fallen for the hottie. He has fallen for the hottie. And his problem is Laban knows it. This is Jacob's tell. And they're two con men trying to con each other. Laban knows that Jacob has fallen for her. So he has worked hard seven years worth. I mean, I mean, women, if you got a guy that's going to work seven years to be with you, um, unless his name's Jacob, I mean, he, he, it might be a solid character here. He's worked hard uh, to have his beloved. And we see the description of this wedding feast. And back then when you got married, I know some of you put on huge, nice weddings. Nothing compared. This is like a week-long party week-long party for a wedding, and, and on the first night then, um, the husband, the groom, gets to be with his wife and consummate the relationship, and you see the chaos that comes as a result. Baal is kept on. There's sort of a mystery there, and, and at this point in, in the children's Bibles, but even in the big people's Bibles sometimes, it's kind of like, oh, Jacob was deceived. What did you do to me? You know, it's like this cutesy, like, I can't believe you fooled me. Oh, um. This is where we need to step beyond the walls of the typical Sunday school story and recognize the real broken hearts involved here. That this is not just a moralistic story that someone made up to teach us about making sure you know who you're consummating. It's not that. These were real historical people that we would believe who went through real stuff like you and I go through real stuff. And there's brokenness, broken hearts. And one broken heart we've got is Jacob's. I mean, some of you might not feel that bad for him, but I mean, one broken heart we've got is Jacob's because he has been a deceiver his whole life, but he's trying to clean up his act. He is working hard. I mean, he has worked hard to be with his beloved, to earn her hand seven years worth. That is sacrifice. He's a guy that's saying, you know, I may have lied in the past, but now I'm going to do it right. Now I'm going to work hard. Now I'm going to be an honor, a man of honor, man of character, man of integrity. And, and after seven years, he finally gets to have his beloved, gets to be with her, gets to enjoy her, gets to share their love. And on what should have been one of the most joyous moments of his life, um, in the morning, it became that shared human reality of broken hope. That, that, I mean, that's what he experienced. And Tim Keller, when he's teaching about this passage here, he references the well-known author C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis writes about the nature of hope. And he, he's talking about this here. And I think we have the, the, passage, uh, the 
from the book up here where he says, most people, if they really learn to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can ever really satisfy. I am not speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or failures of holidays and so on. I'm speaking of the very best possible ones. There is always something we have grasped at. There's always something in that very first moment of longing but fades away in the reality. The spouse may be a good spouse. The scenery has been excellent. It turned out to be a good job, but it's evaded us. In the morning, it's always Leah. Did you catch that? Because, uh, and I think you see it here, right? That this is talking about Jacob. But the reality is it's all of our stories. It's specifically addressing Jacob, but but it's our human experience that we all share being born on this earth that's broken, whether it be with love or really all of life in general. And and we we, uh, phrase it this way. If If I just find that person who will really love me, if I can just find um, my, my Romeo, if I can just find my Juliet, if I can just get that perfect job that I've worked my whole life for, if I can just get, that, get into that perfect school, if I just raise the ideal family, I know my whole family has been broken, but if I can just raise the ideal family, then it'll be different. Or if I just make whatever amount of money, then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll be whole. If I just get rid of this issue in my life, if I just get rid of this temptation or this addiction or this character trait, then I'll be okay. Or if I just move to, and a lot of people lately, if I just move to Florida, then I'll be okay. But what happens? Everyone wanting it to be warm, what's going to be happening in the middle of July? Man, why is it so hot? I just wish it were cold. In the morning, it's always Leah. Life always has a way of telling you that what you so earnestly pursued, thinking it's going to satisfy you, it might even be a good thing, but it ultimately will not be an ultimate thing. And, and we live out with these visions of hope in our life, and all of us, we might have different, and you know, I mean, we're talking about relationships in some sense, but this really applies to all of life. And ultimately, we express disillusionment, uh, whether we get them or not. And, and some of us here, I mean, just we have a wide variety of people. Or some of us here, our disappointment is not getting what we really want. Our disappointment that we wrestle with is not getting that relationship or that job or that money or that family or that home or that city we want to live in. But you know what? Um, sometimes the pain, and I'm not going to say it's greater or worse, but it's just as real, is getting what you think you always wanted. It's actually achieving what you thought you wanted and realizing it is what it is, and it's not God, and it will ultimately disappoint you. 
because this, this part's key. I'm not just talking about, man, you know what? You had a romantic relationship go bad and it crumbled. Or, man, you, you lost that job. You got fired. And the pain of that, I mean, that's real. But I, I can't stress this enough because sometimes, again, I'm, maybe I'm making fun of some preachers. It's okay, right? Keep it here. No one's recording this, right? Um, sometimes it's like Christianity is this weird game where you have whole sets of series saying, okay, basically the goal of being happy in life is to have a perfect marriage. So here's how God can give you seven steps to an ideal marriage. Or you know what? If you could just get, because in America we idolize the family. We have set up this golden calf of the family as if all of life is jacked up. But if you can just build the perfect family, you'll be okay. And we set up these ideals to say, here's how God can provide you a perfect family. And again, I'm not saying that he won't help you in principles, but we have to get out of this mentality that God exists to give us happy things that will really give us meaning in our life. Because there's some situations that, that might even feel more difficult at the time, in, in, the, in some sense, where, where you get exactly what you want, and in the morning, it's always Leah. In the morning, it's always Leah. And, um, you know, again, I mentioned Tim Keller. He's helpful in describing four possible ways that we can respond when we're faced with this, when we're faced with this, this sense of disappointment. And, and how we respond, it often determines our path. One way he describes is that you'll, bla- you'll blame the things you have, and you'll say that's the problem. You'll blame the things you have. And so the, the solution then is I just have to find a better one. So if your problem is marriage or relationships, I just have to find a better relationship. If, that's what, if, your, if your problem is your work is unsatisfying, what's my answer? I just need to find a better job. If you're unhappy where you live, I just need to move to a better place. And, and we, what happens then, it, it's like that movie Groundhog Day. If you've ever seen that, we keep searching, thinking it'll be different this time. But it's always the same. The results are always the same. The details might look different, but it's always the same. Because ultimately, we're placing blame in the thing we're looking for and saying, well, I just haven't hit the right one yet. I just need to keep trying. Uh, another way he described that we respond is maybe not you don't blame the thing itself, but you blame yourself. You, you blame yourself and you hate yourself. You get to a point where things crumble around you maybe or you're not getting what you think you really need and you become this self-loathing person. You become a person just hates the way God made you. You hate the way you look. You hate the way you react. You hate the way you handle conflict. You hate the way you respond to people. You hate all these things about you and you say things like, man, if I wasn't just so stupid, if I wasn't so naive all the time, if I didn't make such bad decisions, I would be okay. I wouldn't be in this mess. And sometimes we respond by hating ourselves. You blame yourself. Or maybe some of us, uh, you just blame life. You just say, well, that's just the way life is. Life stinks. You know, I want to be careful. What I, life stinks. And, and you.